Our scripture for the sermon this morning is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 11, verses 14 through 28. That will be on page 869 in the Pew Bible or Chair Bible, if um, you would like to use one of those. And by the way, uh, speaking of the Bibles, if uh, you do not have a Bible, uh, we have plenty of these, uh, so feel free to take one home with you with our compliments. Okay, uh, Luke chapter 11, uh, beginning at verse 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and I cast out demons, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. And then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the wound that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Wow. <laughs> what a passage. You know, if the Bible were a movie, this scene would have to rank right up there with the most amazing things packed into a single scene. Now, granted, uh, it doesn't seem like a supernatural action-packed scene, um, but, but Luke and his understated style, he must be part British at least, uh, doesn't embellish the eye-popping, jaw-dropping things that Jesus does in this passage we just read. Nevertheless, he still tells us, uh, Luke that is, he still tells us what Jesus says and does, and uh, by the way, anything Jesus says or does is of keen interest. So in, these, in this scene, we witness a showdown between Jesus and a demon. High drama, right? Well, granted, it's no contest. Uh, 
but doesn't that really accentuate the magnitude of Jesus' power? He just simply tells the demon to leave, and it does. So in addition to casting the demon out of a man, Jesus reads the minds of his critics. He knew what they were thinking. He is exposing their hearts, which is evident by the arguments they offer. He makes it clear that the kingdom of God has come when he says, if I do these things by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He exposes demonic activity and demonic strategy for all of us to see. It's really pretty amazing stuff. And then, at the end, some woman in the crowd raises her voice and pronouncing, pronounces a blessing on Jesus' mother with some rather embarrassing phraseology. So this passage is good theater, it's also good theology, and it's something else. It is revealing. Although this passage seems to be about uh, demons and casting them out and all of the things that are involved with that and, and uh, with what a, the, the greatest blessing or true blessing really is, at its heart this passage is about revelation. And we're going to see several things here that Jesus reveals. First of all, first revelation that we see here is the cosmic conflict between God and Satan. In verse 14, we meet a man who was under the control of a demon. The man was possessed by uh, a particular demon who made it impossible for him to speak. And so Jesus casts the, uh, the demon out. There's no fanfare, no theatrics, not even a fog machine for special effects. Jesus just calmly evicts the demon. And the demon obeys without so much as a whimper. You know, I have seen two-year-olds offer more resistance to their parents than this demon offers to Jesus. Nevertheless, this does not mean that the demons don't pose much of a threat to us. They certainly can, and they do. But you may not even be aware that demons are still around. So I want to briefly note that demons can afflict us in much the same way that the demon in our text uh, afflicted the man we just read about. The man, uh, let me put it to you this way, that the man had a physical consequence as a result of a spiritual problem, meaning that even though the man was mute and if he went to a doctor to try to get help, um, you know, there's no pill that's going to help. There's no physical therapy that's going to help. There, there's no surgery that a doctor can do that would cure this man of his inability to speak. Uh, but there is a spiritual problem behind that. And that ought to provide an insight for us that a lot of times we have physical consequences of something, but it may not be due to a physical problem, physical illness or anything of that nature. It could be due to something spiritual. So keep that in the back of your minds. We'll come back to it later. So I want to acknowledge that I'm not a medical professional, uh, certainly not an expert on anything that has to do with medicine nor am I an expert 
on demons. Um, nevertheless, it's clear from Scripture that demons can and do cause a lot of trouble. And they're still around. I mean, they haven't all been consigned to the pit yet. So uh, they've always been on the earth um, messing with people. So uh, we would do well to acknowledge that um, there is still this cosmic conflict uh, between the forces of God and the forces of the evil one. So um, I want to point out something that Paul said in, in Ephesians chapter 6 and uh, his um, encouragement to the Ephesians. He said, I think I've got this on the PowerPoint here. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, Paul is encouraging the Ephesians to be aware that uh, demonic activity is, is certainly real and there are measures that we can take uh, to defend ourselves against those attacks. So as, as, as much as a discussion on this passage from Ephesians would be both fascinating and helpful, uh, I'm not going to go any further uh, than to point you to the fact that the spiritual dimension is real. I, I know we live in a culture that uh, doesn't always like to acknowledge that there is a God or that there is uh, a, a, a real devil, but we learn from Scripture that uh, there is a God and there is a devil and uh, there are angelic forces and there are demonic forces and uh, sometimes we are influenced by them and uh, confronted by them without even knowing it. Uh, there's another passage in, in Ephesians, this one is from chapter 4, that, that warns us not to let the sun go down on our wrath, uh, lest we give an opportunity to the, the devil. So, just saying that demonic activity is real, and it can show up as a physical problem, which Jesus reveals to us in this passage that it does in, in this particular case. So we want to be aware of the reality of spiritual forces that are at work in the world. And uh, we don't have to wait long before we see another manifestation of demonic activity taking place here. Uh, not only was there a demon who was causing this particular man in the text uh, to be unable to speak, uh, we see demonic activity at work with Jesus' critics. The critics are convinced that Jesus I mean, they can't deny that he is doing a supernatural work. You know, when someone who has a demon, he's not able to speak, and Jesus, and, and in a very understated way, as Luke reports it, uh, just cast the demon out, and you can't see the demon move, but the man speaks. And so it's evident that uh, something supernatural has taken place here. There is no denying that. And so the logical conclusion would be, well, if Jesus had cast out a demon, uh, then logically wouldn't that uh, strongly suggest or prove uh, that Jesus is from God? That would be what we might expect. But Jesus' critics are not convinced. They may be slightly impressed, 
but they come up with an alternative explanation. Say, ah, he cast out demons by Beelzebul. Now, Beelzebul is a name that in the original Hebrew sounds much like uh, a term that was used, uh, the title being Lord of the Flies or Lord of the Stuff that Flies kind of hang out on. Uh, so it's a, a derogatory term. And they are strongly suggesting, they ins in fact, they are insisting that we know that this man, Jesus, is not from God because he does not agree with us and he does not agree with our theology. Therefore, he is wrong. Not only is he wrong, we know that he cannot be from God no matter how many people he heals, uh, no matter how many demons he casts out, no matter how many people he raises from the dead, no matter how many otherwise convincing things he may do, like turning water to wine or walking on water, we know that he cannot be from God because he doesn't agree with us. Therefore, there is only one remaining logical explanation. He must be from Satan. Oh, come on, give me a break. <laughs> it's pretty much what Jesus is saying. So, do you guys realize what kind of logic you're using here? Uh, are, are you suggesting, really, that Satan wants to impress everybody here by casting out one of his own who has been holding this man under bondage, making it impossible for him to, uh, to speak, do you really think that this is a strategy that Satan would use? Would anyone use that strategy uh, to uh, destroy his own forces in, in order to make a point? By the way, I want to insert something here that might help us explain or, or understand what's going on. And in those days, it was understood or believed that in, in order to have mastery over Satan, to be able to command uh, a, a demon to leave uh, someone, that you had to know that demon's name. And the only way, of course, you could learn the demon's name was through the person whom the demon inhabited. So if you got a man who can't speak, <laughs> how is he going to tell you? The demon's name. Now, that might seem kind of strange to us, but for many centuries uh, throughout uh, folklore and cultures of, of the world, uh, both in East and West, there has been this belief that if you know a person's real name, you have power over that person. If you read the story of Rumpelstiltskin, uh, you would understand that that really is the case, and uh, this certainly the case in the context in which we are talking about the scripture today but Jesus comes in he doesn't have to find out the name of the demon he just tells him to get lost uh, literally and he he does it, he's, he's gone and that really should have been all that it would take in order to convince Jesus critics that he really is from God but no, they have made up their minds already and no amount of evidence or proof right before their eyes even is going to convince them. So, that is one revelation I want us to see uh, is that there is a real cosmic 
uh, struggle between the forces of God and the forces of evil. And it's manifested for us here in the illogical way that Jesus' critics process what has happened. They just can't think clearly. But then Jesus makes something very clear. We go, we go to the second revelation, and uh, that is this, that the hearts of Jesus' critics are revealed. When Jesus miraculously expels the demon from the man who had been unable to speak, uh, you know, everyone celebrated, that is, except for the critics, uh, they, they celebrated this victory over the forces of evil. Uh, Luke tells us that they marveled and that is an appropriate response. You know, when you see something like that, something that, that Jesus did commanding this demon to leave and then seeing this man who had been mute, who was, uh, you know, able to speak, uh, it should elicit marveling. And so you would think that maybe Jesus' critics would say, you know, I mean, if they had honest hearts, you know, maybe we were wrong about Jesus. <laughs> maybe we need to change our mind about him. You know, by the way, that is as good a definition for repentance as I think there is. It is a changing of the mind. Uh, but the critics of Jesus weren't about to change their mind because of this revelation here about their hearts. Uh, their hearts are hard. Uh, their hearts are dark. Um, and so the, the, the light of truth uh, did not penetrate. And so they come to this ridiculous conclusion that Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Satan, uh, which just shows that their hearts were so hard that they couldn't think straight. Now, at this point, I have to wonder, which is more astonishing? Jesus calmly casting out a demon from a man, enable him to speak, or the Pharisees coming to this absolutely ridiculous conclusion that Jesus got his power from Satan. I don't know which is more astonishing. Uh, of course, one is good and one is bad, but uh, they're, they're both astonishing. But nevertheless, this is a charge uh, that the Pharisees lay at Jesus' feet. Uh, you must be from Satan. All the evidence points to that, blah, 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 blah. Then in verses 17 and 18, uh, Jesus, in effect, says, uh, uh, yeah, right, guys. Uh, we, we've already talked about that, so I won't talk about it again. But we'll just sum up by saying that the accusation of the Pharisees is logically absurd. And so Jesus offers the alternative explanation to the question of where he gets his power, uh, and that's found in yet another revelation in the text, and this one is in verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And here we see the third revelation. Jesus is clearly revealing his identity as God in the flesh. That's what he's doing. In uh, verse 14, which we uh, alluded to earlier, uh, there we saw that Jesus cast a demon out of a man who was unable to speak. The people marveled. I think I might have that verse here. Yeah, there it is. Um, 
So it's, uh, th that was the appropriate uh, re response. And uh, then we come to uh, verse 20, uh, where Jesus talks about the finger of God. Uh, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The term finger of God uh, means God's power and nothing else. Um, if you've ever seen a picture of the Sistine Chapel, you know, where you have uh, the finger of Adam reaching toward heaven and the finger of God reaching down, uh, you know, Michelangelo was seeking to capture this image here of the, the finger of God. Uh, it's a, a term used in scripture uh, along with the hand of God that, 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 that represents that uh, something is being done by the power of God and the power of God alone. Um, I want to take you back to a story in Exodus, uh, Exodus 8, uh, where uh, Moses has been commissioned by God to go to Pharaoh and to petition Pharaoh to allow the people of, of Israel, uh, the, the Hebrews, to go into the wilderness to worship. And Pharaoh's not inclined to let them go. Uh, the Hebrews are slaves and there's work to be done. And uh, Pharaoh's just not inclined to let them go. And so God empowers Moses to do things that would help change, his, help change Pharaoh's mind, help him repent, that is, see things in a different light. And so, you know, he throws down the rod and uh, it becomes a snake and Pharaoh's not impressed. He calls upon his magicians and they also throw down their rods and they become snakes. But then uh, the, the rod of, of Aaron at this particular uh, place uh, swallows up the snakes uh, of the magicians. Uh, Pharaoh's not impressed and so uh, there's a, an, another plague there where um, God tells Moses to extend his rod over the river Nile and it turns to blood. All the water in the land turns to, to blood, all the, the, the standing ponds and so forth. And the ones that were not turned to blood, well, the Egyptian magicians uh, can do that. Does it strike you curious uh, that Pharaoh calls upon his magicians to give everyone reason not to uh, believe in what the uh, the, the men of God are doing, but instead of reversing that curse, instead of changing the, the, the water from blood back into water, they say, well, we can do that too. And so they uh, make the problem worse. And the same thing happens with the next plague with the frogs. You know, frogs all over the land of Egypt. Bring in the magicians. We don't have enough frogs here. You know, the scripture tells us that the frogs are everywhere. And they're kneading bowls, uh, um, you know, in their bedrooms, wake up in the middle of the night to go get a drink of water, and uh, you step on a frog, and you open the refrigerator, and, and there's frogs there. I mean, uh, who would want to have uh, frogs everywhere? And uh, Pharaoh calls upon Moses, uh, go talk to your God and see if you get rid of these frogs. Uh, well, when would you like me to get rid of the frogs, oh Pharaoh? Tomorrow. Well, what's wrong with right now? Well, you know, tomorrow is always the best time to do anything that involves a change of lifestyle or something that uh, you're really not inclined to do. Well, that's an extra uh, aside there. I just kind of threw that in. Uh, nevertheless, we come to the next plague, and the next plague is gnats. 
Now, I know here we are in the middle of January. We don't have to worry about gnats and mosquitoes and that sort of thing. But in the middle of summer when the sun is high and it's 102 degrees and the humidity is at least that high and you've got gnats swarming everywhere, it is absolutely miserable, is it not? And so we've got all these gnats and so uh, Pharaoh, again, instead of asking his magicians, can you do something about these gnats? Uh, you know, can you also produce gnats? And so the magicians, uh, they, they try, but they can't do it. And I want to show you what they had to say in uh, verse 19 of Exodus 8. The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, Here's the amazing thing. You've got Egyptian magicians. That is, they are not acquainted with the God of the Hebrews, with the God whom we know and serve. They have their own gods, and they had a totally different understanding of the supernatural. Uh, they believed that Pharaoh was God. And Pharaoh was powerless to do anything about this. And so all this other stuff that their magicians were able to do, perhaps by sleight of hand, perhaps by something else. But when it gets to the gnats, they can't do it. And they recognize this is the finger of God. And we get to Luke chapter 11, and he says, you know, by my casting out the demon from this man, by, by this you know that I've done this by the finger of God. Uh, so with the finger of God has come upon you, you know that the, if I do this by the finger of God, then you know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, here's the question. If Egyptian magicians who know nothing about God can recognize that God has done something, they have no other explanation, but that this must be the finger of God, then why could not these Pharisees who were teachers of the law who were very familiar with the Pentateuch, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They, they knew these writings by heart. And when Jesus comes and he does something by the finger of God, why could they not recognize what the Egyptian magicians could recognize? Well, their hearts were hard. And Jesus is showing that. That, you know, if your hearts were honest, you'd be able to recognize that what I have done is by the finger of God and that the kingdom of God has not just come near you, the kingdom of God has come upon you. You understand the significance of, of that? When Jesus says the kingdom of God has come upon you, it means God is as near to you as you can get and you don't recognize it. And why do you not recognize it? Because your hearts are hard. And what is it that made their hearts hard? It wasn't anything evil. Well, I mean, there was evil inside of them. But the Lord Jesus casting out a demon and the, his critics, the Pharisees, the, the, the scribes, the teachers of the law say, this is an act of the devil. Now, they are getting awfully, awfully close to the unpardonable sin which we will talk about later when we get to that, but just kind of file that away for future reference. Let's move on. Uh, we come to the fourth 
revelation here. And uh, here's something that Jesus reveals. He uh, reveals the source of the greater blessing. Now let's put this in context. Jesus has had this conversation with the Pharisees about uh, the, the logic, the faulty logic that they had and about how, uh, you know, if uh, uh, Satan would cast out his, his own forces, uh, you know, he'd be working against himself. That makes no sense. So he, he's, he's talking about that. And while he's talking about this, there's this woman who comes up and, and she yells out. I mean, she, she speaks loudly. Some words that you might be really embarrassing to, to hear. And, uh, you know, where you know, she is blessing Mary and Jesus' mother, um, paraphrasing, it would have been wonderful to have been your mother. <laughs> uh, and, and Jesus does not rebuke her. He doesn't say, oh, no, 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 that's not a blessing. Uh, the real blessing is to hear the word of God and do it. What he's saying is that there is a blessing that is even greater than having been my mother or being my mother. And that blessing is available to anyone who hears and keeps the word of God. Isn't that really nice to know? I mean, how can you imagine how blessed it would be to be in Mary's shoes, to have been chosen by God to be the bearer of the Son of God who is coming into the world to be the Redeemer of His people. And yet, that very Redeemer says there is a blessing that is greater than even that. It is to hear the Word of God and to do it. And that's available to all of us. So, I want to point you back to Mary just for a moment. When the angel came to her and said, uh, you have found favor with God and behold, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will conceive even though you are a virgin and you will give uh, uh, you know, birth to a son and uh, you call his name Jesus where he, saves, he will save his people from their sins. And her response is, let it be done to me according to your word. In other words, you know what she is doing? She is hearing the word of God and she's doing it. She says, let this word become alive in my life. And that's what this woman is pointing us to. Now this had to have been music to Jesus' ears. When this woman comes out and, you know, she, you know, blessed is, is, is your mother and uh, some other things that describe uh, maternal uh, responsibilities and privileges. Um, you know what she was doing? In the context of all of these high-powered, high-profile critics who were saying that Jesus is over here working on behalf of Satan by casting out a demon. How much sense does that make? But nevertheless, it's in that context that this woman lifts her voice up above that fray and says, I am pro-Jesus. She is not embarrassed by the words that she said. She is not embarrassed that no one else is saying those words along with her. She is absolutely in the Jesus column, and she wants everybody to know that. You know, there might be a lesson there for us, a blessing for us there, 
we live in a culture that's not exactly what you might call pro-Jesus, don't we? But to let it be known, you don't have to do it in an embarrassing way, but to not be embarrassed for people to know, to let people know that you are pro-Jesus. So, there you have it. Uh, some information uh, about what the text reveals to us. Uh, I think it's good information, and I encourage you to receive it as something of great value. But information alone is not enough to transform your life. In addition to information, you also need formation. That is, we need application. We need not only to hear the word, but also to keep the word, to do the word. And so, therefore, it seems appropriate that we ask this question. Not that one. Not that one. That one. One, two, three. That's a good question. I'm glad you asked. So, here are a, a few things um, that will help us apply the message or apply the information uh, to our lives. Uh, that is to add along side information. Uh, we're going to use that uh, as um, fuel for formation. So here are a few recommendations. Number one, uh, you need more than New Year's resolutions to transform your life. Uh, it isn't enough to clean up your life a little bit by you know, getting off things like drugs or alcohol or cigarettes or sugar or any of those things. Now, Jesus uh, you know, re refers to uh, someone who a, a demon had inhabited him and the demon left and uh, was wandering in waterless places and so forth. And when he, he decides he's going to come back to uh, the, the house, meaning the person where he, he, he once uh, dwelt and finds it clean and swept and in order, meaning that it's possible for somebody uh, to clean up his or her life, you know, get rid of those uh, bad habits and do some good habits. But if you don't fill it up with something of substance, a spiritual substance, meaning Christ, meaning the, the Spirit of God, then you're going to be open to... Um, having things be worse than they were uh, before you started the project. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, you need more than New Year's resolutions to transform your life. Uh, you need to do more than just clean up your life a little. You need Jesus. Second thing, hearts are revealed in our text this morning, including your heart and my heart. Now it's easy to see Jesus reading the hearts of his critics. He could read their thoughts. He could also see their hearts and he exposes them for what they are, showing them their faulty logic. Lays it out there for everyone to see. And when we read this passage, it opens up our hearts too. When we um, are, if we are honest with ourselves, uh, we, we realize that he knows what's in our hearts and He knows what needs to come out and what needs to go in. So uh, open, honest hearts. The third thing is to be aware that there are demonic forces in this world and that 
these demonic forces want to form you spiritually. Now, this is a, a little bit complicated, but just in the wider culture, we know that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Uh, so, you know, there's just stuff out there that kind of forms the way that we think, um, can form our theology, uh, affect the way we think about God. Um, so the encouragement here is to um, be aware uh, that there are forces at work. And uh, I'm going to read again the passage from Ephesians 6. It's uh, a, a few verses uh, longer than what we read earlier. Um, but if you want to uh, follow along or, or listen, the Apostle Paul says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So the encouragement here is to be spiritually alert. And the fourth application here is this. You can't be neutral about Jesus. So in our text this morning, we see how Jesus reveals uh, who is for him and who is against him. If you were not for him, you were against him, he says. So do not think that you can avoid taking one position or the other. Who is Jesus? Well, he is a supernatural being. I think everyone would have to admit that. There's no question about that. But is he in line with Satan or is he in line with God? You have to come to a decision one way or the other. There is no middle ground. You cannot be neutral about Jesus. If you do not believe who he reveals himself to be, then you're going to have to wrestle with illogical conclusions. There is no satisfying conclusion. But if he is who he says he is, if he is who reveals himself to be, then acknowledge that, confess that, and don't be embarrassed to say so. Luke, in his consistent, understated way, continues to bring this question before his readers. Who is this man? 
and it should become obvious to us and have that answer reinforced to us as we continually make our way through this narrative. Who is this man? He is the Lord God Almighty come in the form of a human being to represent us on the earth where Adam failed, only this time to be successful in every way. And everyone who identifies with him and makes him Lord and Savior shall also share in that victory which Jesus accomplished through his perfect life and his sacrificial death. Let us pray. We thank you, our Father, for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the word and the word that became flesh. Uh, for this portion of the word this morning that we have read and studied and uh, sought to apply, uh, we ask that your word might be alive in us and that you'll help us to be strong in our faith, uh, unashamed and not embarrassed to let it be known whose side we are on. Through Christ our Lord we pray, amen.